795 in your pew Bible there. Thank you. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said. They let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow any to carry anything, anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And, wherever, and whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, 
so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for reading this morning. And if you're joining us on the live stream, I want to say welcome. Thanks for joining us this morning. We have a uh, cold morning here. It's so cold that I wore a little sport coat for the first time in a long time. So, um, <clears throat> but uh, we're excited to look at God's word this morning. Before we jump in, I do just want to say just a quick word of thanks from our family to you all, our church family. Um, thank you so much for how you have loved on us. I know it's uh, we're two weeks into the year already, but just just thinking back over the last year. Um, just want to say thank you so much for your kindness to us. Um, you have overwhelmed us with gifts and cards and gift cards and all, just all kinds of uh, ways that you have um, shown us kindness. And we want to we say thank you. It's been such a joy and a privilege uh, to be here. Um, you know, one of the most sobering scriptures in all of God's word for me as a pastor, is Hebrews 13, where uh, the, the author there says, uh, Obey your leaders and submit to them as those who watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. And that's pretty sobering for me. Um, but I, I like how it ends, and you all make this just a wonderful uh, privilege because uh, the, the end of that verse, um, it says, Let them do this with joy, um, and not with hardship. Now, I'm not going to remember all of it, but uh, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, if you make it difficult, it, won't, it will be of no advantage to you as a church, but you all have made it a great joy and a privilege. And so we want to say thank you so much for how you've loved our family. Well, why don't we uh, start this morning uh, by going to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll open up uh, Mark chapter 11. God, we thank you this morning that you have loved us. We thank you that as we have already sung that you, you came to earth to die for us and you rose again. Thank you for the joy that there is in celebrating this every single week as we come and gather together. Thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together. A week like this reminds us of that. And so we want to say thank you. And we pray also as we prayed as we sang that you would show us Jesus this morning, that you would reveal your word, that you would guide our thoughts together this morning, and that you would work in us a spirit of dependent faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some things in life are not what they appear to be like your driveway this weekend, right? <clears throat> it's not what it appears to be. Some of you thought you had a really level and, and straight driveway, but as you, as you took the shovel across that driveway, you realized, oh, there are more crevices and cracks than there were last year. <laughs> um, <clears throat> some of you thought your driveway vanished into thin air. <laughs> some of you wish your driveway vanished into thin air. Or uh, how about this one? A couple weeks ago during Christmas time, uh, we were with my family down in Charlotte, and my niece brought to me a little jelly bean. And it looked like a good jelly bean. I mean, it looked tasty. And so she handed me this jelly bean, and I, and I ate it. And I quickly spit it out in the trash can 
because it was flavored rotten eggs. <laughs> and I'm not going to eat anything from her ever again. <laughs> and I had to like re-eat Christmas dinner all over again to get the taste out of my mouth. Some things are just not what they look like. They're not what they appear to be. Or what about that giant watermelon slice by the river? It looks exactly like, okay, no, it doesn't look like a watermelon slice. But it does look kind of cool right now uh, with all the snow on it. It does look kind of cool. So, But some things just aren't what they appear to be. They look great on the outside, but on the inside, it's gross. And this morning, we are going to encounter the temple. And we're going to see Jesus ride to Jerusalem, and we're going to see him in the temple. And what we're going to find this morning is that the temple is not what it appears to be, or at least it's not what it should be. And I think this reveals something about all of humanity, and Jesus has something to say about it. And so let's jump in this morning. This morning, I'd like you to see three things, and I've sort of arranged them into one sentence. Okay, so first, what I'd like you to see is the humble king. The humble king. As we look at these first 11 verses, I think we find Jesus as a humble king, and we see that in two different ways. So let me show you these two ways. First, we see some messianic connections. Messianic connections. In these verses, there are several clear connections to the Old Testament that describe the coming Messiah who would deliver Israel from their oppression. These are connections that point to a coming king. So let me show you some of these here in the text. And just a fair warning, I'm going to give you several Old Testament passages, but we're not going to look them up. And so let me encourage you to write them down, maybe in the margin of your Bible or maybe in your notes, and then go back and look these up later because there are some clear Messianic connections. So first, we have here that Jesus is coming from the Mount of Olives. And there are some clear Messianic connections with the Mount of Olives that we read about in passages like Ezekiel eleven twenty three, and Zechariah fourteen four, so you can write those down. You can go look them up later. But some messianic connections to the Mount of Olives. Next, we have Jesus exercising the right to requisition an animal. I mean, he goes and says, "Untie this donkey and bring it here." But that was the right only of a king. No one else could just do that. But then the fact that Jesus is riding on the colt of a donkey fulfills an Old Testament promise from Zechariah 9.9. So you can write that one down. And that one speaks specifically of your king coming to you mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Another messianic connection. And what's more is that this donkey, it says, it says, has never been ridden. No one has ever sat on this donkey, it says. And I think that reflects the sacredness of an animal that had never been used, never been ridden, according to several Old Testament texts. And the fact that it was tied up echoes Genesis 49, 10, and 11, another messianic text. And then finally, the crowd spreads their cloaks and their leafy garments all over the floor, all over the ground, just like they did for King Jehu, in 2 Kings 9.13. Okay, so we've got all these messianic connections. Now, some of you are thinking, Jordan, that's a lot of Old Testament references and details that sort of seem insignificant, especially on a cold morning when I'm really concerned about whether my car will start when I get back to it. (laughs) Um, So what's the point? Well, here's the point. 
There are so many details in this text that point to the fact that Jesus is described as the Messiah, the coming king. And so there's no question. Mark is making very clear. He's reminding us and he's showing us very vividly that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. Jesus is the king. He is king. But there's a second thing that I'd like you to just notice about these verses. Because here's something that's interesting. All four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four describe this story that we have in the first 11 verses here. All four of them describe it. But Mark's emphasis in this account is a little bit different than the other three gospel accounts. Mark describes these messianic connections, but he shows them, secondly, as veiled declarations. Veiled declarations. Notice something about Mark's account. In your Bible, you probably have a little title next to this passage. It might be right above this, these, uh, this paragraph. It might be next to it in the margin. And what is that title? If you have a title in your Bible, what is that title there? What do you see there? Yeah, the triumphal entry. Okay. But if we read this text carefully in Mark, it's neither triumphal nor an entry. I mean, Jesus doesn't get to Jerusalem. He doesn't enter Jerusalem until verse 11, after all of this. And if you compare this account to Matthew, Luke, and John's account, it's not nearly as triumphant as their accounts. Let me just show you some of this. Okay, so look at the declarations of the crowd. Okay, so what do they say? They say, they say, Hosanna. Okay, what's that all about? Well, the word Hosanna comes from a, a phrase in Psalm 118, which is a psalm that Israelites would sing as they journey towards Jerusalem for some of these feasts. And so it comes from this phrase that, that literally the phrase is, save us now. That's the phrase. But between when Psalm 118 was written and the time of Jesus, the phrase had sort of lost its meaning. And it was sort of just like, it was kind of used as like an exclamation for praise. Kind of like, hallelujah. Okay, does, anyone, does anybody know what does the word hallelujah mean? Does anyone know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, the, that's kind of the point, right? It means hallelujah. I had to look this up because I didn't either. It means God be praised. So there you go. Now you know. But we don't, we don't really necessarily think about that phrase while we use the word. We just say hallelujah. I don't know. Ex- exciting. Yay. Awesome. <laughs> Wonderful. But it means God be praised. And, and um, Hosanna was very similar. It had a meeting, but it was largely forgotten. So there are these sort of connections, but veiled connections to Jesus as king. But then notice how Mark's emphasis from the crowd is different from Luke's. I mean, when Luke describes what the crowd is saying, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, as if they're pointing at Jesus and saying, he's the king. But what does Mark say? Mark says in verse 9, in verse 10, sorry, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So there's a connection, but it's a veiled connection. And then in Matthew, the crowd says, Hosanna to the son of David. But here in Mark, the crowd simply says, Hosanna. And then I think it's interesting that even though there are all these clear Old Testament connections, Mark never quotes them. 
I mean, Matthew and John explicitly quote the Old Testament here, but Mark doesn't even quote them. And then finally, I think it's also interesting that at the end of this section in verse 11, we find Jesus basically alone in the temple late in the evening, and then he goes home. He leaves. And so although Mark clearly thinks of Jesus as the Messiah King, he veils these, this thinking in the way that he presents his story. So why is that? Well, I think it's because Mark is trying to emphasize in this passage that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he is the king. But Mark is very careful to keep us from thinking that Jesus' kingship is all about external pomp and circumstance. It's a big show. No, Mark wants us to understand Jesus, yes, he is a king, but he is a king like we saw just a few verses back in Mark chapter 10. He's a king that came to serve and to give. He's a humble king. And this becomes very important in helping us understand the next part of the story. So he's a humble king. That's who he is. Jesus is a humble king. And notice next, the humble king is not impressed with external show. He's not impressed by external show. Now, in these verses, from verse uh, 12 all the way to 26... If you're like me, when we read this passage earlier, you may have had all kinds of questions. Like, why did Jesus curse a poor, helpless fig tree? I mean, like Mark even says, it wasn't even the season for figs. So why is Jesus, I mean, is this just vindictive fury from Jesus? Or what about Jesus' actions in the temple? I mean, weren't they a little over the top? Doesn't Christianity denounce anger? I mean, that seems really violent. I mean, can you imagine if somebody came in this room and all of a sudden took a sledgehammer to some of these pews here? I mean, that would be like, what is going on? We, we would denounce that. So what's with Jesus doing this? What about Jesus' teaching on faith and prayer? I mean, is it, is it really true that if I, just, if I just have enough faith, then God will give me whatever I want? And then what does forgiveness have to do with this entire chapter? <laughs> so there are all these questions these questions that came to my mind as I began studying this passage. And let me see if I can explain some things that might help us to make sense of some of these questions. First, let's talk about Jesus' actions in the temple. Because there's a reason for Jesus' dramatic actions. And I think there are a few reasons why Jesus was so disturbed by what was taking place in the temple. So picture with me for just a moment. Go back with me in your mind to this day and age with Jesus. A picture in your mind's eye as you walk into the temple courtyard. You are immediately confronted with lots of commotion. I mean, it's almost too much. And for the extreme introverts in the room, it's way too much. <laughs> I mean, there are thousands of people here. I mean, some people have estimated that during this time in the Passover, there are about 250,000 people who would flock to Jerusalem. So there's people everywhere in Jerusalem. And then you go into the temple, and there's people everywhere. So it's a crowded place. And you hear the bleeding of sheep and the mooing of cows. But that's not the only one of your five senses that tells you animals are around, if you know what I mean. And you're trying to keep up with Jesus, and he's walking through the crowd. But in order to do that, you have to push, push past shoulders and arms, because there's so many people. And Jesus pauses at the money changers' tables. And so you look to see what he notices. And you notice 
that the, you see these coins from all over. I mean, there are many different local currencies in this day, and all of them had to be exchanged for the current currency in Jerusalem in order to pay your temple tax, which is an act of worship. You had to exchange your money. But what you notice is that the money changers aren't just exchanging the currency, they're charging the exchange a lot. I mean, some people have estimated that they would charge around a whole day's wage just to change your money. I mean, so, oh, you want to go worship God this morning? All right, so that will cost you $150. Okay, thank you. Wow. I mean, then you notice... As you continue on with Jesus, you notice in the open market that the court of the Gentiles has been turned into, you pause again by an animal stand. Now, let me just explain something here. Now, I mean, people would come from all over the land to Jerusalem, hundreds of miles that they would journey. And it wasn't exactly easy to take your beloved bull from your home hundreds of miles to Jerusalem with you. And so what you would often do is you would sell your bull in your, your, your home area, and then you would travel to Jerusalem, and you would purchase another bull to offer as a sacrifice. And there was nothing necessarily wrong with this, except that in this case, this buying and selling was happening in the temple. And there were these animal inspectors that would inspect these animals to make sure that there was no blemish. But it was very subjective, extremely subjective, and they had ways of finding, finding oh, your animal will, will have a blemish here in the future, so you probably need a different one. <laughs> I mean, there's all this corruption that's taking place. And what made all of this stink even more is that standing above all of this, all this marketplace is the one who oversaw and probably profited from all of this was the high priest, Annas. And so this whole thing, it was corrupt. It was putrid. But even more significant than this corruption is the fact that all of this was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. The one place that Gentiles could go in order to worship and pray. The one place. They couldn't go into the court of the women or the court of the Jews because they were Gentiles. This was their place of worship. But remember the picture of commotion and the buying and selling and bartering and talking. I mean, have you ever tried, have you ever tried to go to pray at the mall on Black Friday? Like, it doesn't work. I mean, have you ever, have you ever considered holding a worship session at an Iowa basketball game? I mean, specifically the girls' basketball game. No one comes to the guys. I mean, it just, it won't work. You can't do it. And Jesus quotes here in this passage, in verse, I think it's 17 here. Yes, in verse 17, he quotes Isaiah 56, 7. Here's what he says. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? It is a house of prayer for all the nations, literally Gentiles. But the nations are not able to pray here because of all of the commotion that's taking place in the one place where they could come to worship. But there's a third reason that this just churned Jesus' stomach. 
And I think it's even more significant than the other two. So your Bible might not list this as a quote. My Bible lists Isaiah 56, 7, but it doesn't list Jeremiah 7 as another quote. Because the last, the last part of that phrase that Jesus, is, that Jesus quotes here, when he says, but you have made it a den of robbers, you might note in your Bible, Jeremiah 7. Because this is the text that Jesus has in mind when he makes this quote. And I think it's so significant that I'm going to read uh, sort of a lengthy portion, 11 verses, from Jeremiah 7. If you want to, you're welcome to turn there and follow along with me. But I'm going to read from Jeremiah 7 because this is what was in Jesus' mind when he denounces the Sanhedrin here back in Mark 11. Listen to these words from Jeremiah 7. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, the temple, and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place and the land that I gave to, of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, here it is, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. This is the passage that was in Jesus' mind when he denounces the Sanhedrin in the temple. What is he saying? The temple is not a place to hide your spiritual filth behind. You cannot live six days of the week as if God does not exist and then come to the place of worship, do certain religious duties, and expect God to be okay with it. It is putrid to him. Like a den that the mischievous retreat to for safety, this sort of acting treats God's temple as a shelter to hide behind, bringing all your spiritual filth with you. But God will have none of it. He's not impressed by religious pomp. He's not impressed by religious rituals or religious show. It's putrid to him. And what Jesus is proclaiming to the Jews here in Mark 11 is that the time has run out. Judgment is coming and the temple will be destroyed. And this is the point of the whole fig tree episode. Let me explain to you some things about the fig tree. Because Mark sandwiches 
the temple cleansing with a fig tree lesson. What's a sandwich? You got two parts that are the same on one side, and then you got part one, one, a different part that's in the middle. You're like, Jordan, please don't use a food illustration this close to lunch. I know, I'm sorry. But that's what it is. Now, sometimes at home, we'll do, a, we'll do a juby sandwich, right? We'll do a juby sandwich. What's that? We got mom and dad and juby in the middle, and we hug her from either side, and it's a juby sandwich. And then she'll run around and say, oh, it's a daddy sandwich now. Okay, so it's a sandwich. You got two parts on the outside, then one part in the middle. And in Mark, he'll use this from time to time to explain. So he'll use the two parts on the outside to explain the part in the middle and the part in the middle to explain the parts on the outside. And so what we have here in Mark 11, when Jesus curses the fig tree, it's not, it's not a haphazard, vindictive fury. Instead, it's a thoughtful and vivid illustration of what was going to happen to the Jerusalem temple. So let me explain what's going on here with the fig tree. Mark notes in verse 13 that it was not the season for figs. So I've read that fig trees produce good-tasting figs sometime in the, in the months of May and June, starting then. Right before that, they begin to grow green leaves sometime around April. And before that, they would grow these little green knoppy things called pagin. And these were, they were not as tasty as the ripe figs, but they were still edible. And so it was reasonable, all, even though it wasn't fig season, it was reasonable for Jesus to find something edible from this tree. And here's the point. When Jesus comes to inspect the temple, it was reasonable for him to find some fruit of worship, some fruit of dependent prayer, some fruit of thoughtful meditation. But just as the green leaves of the fig tree deceptively hid the fact that there was nothing to eat on the tree. The magnificence of the temple, I mean, it was a beautiful building. The magnificence of the temple deceptively hid the fact that the fruit of genuine worship was completely absent. There was an external display of vibrancy, but on the inside, there was decay. And so Jesus' curse of the fig tree is a foreshadow of the destruction of the temple. And we hear more about that in Mark. And a little bit here, we'll look at chapter 13, verse 2, and where Jesus prophesied to the disciples that there will not be one stone left upon another. It's going to be destroyed. In Mark 14, 58, Jesus prophesies about the, the, his, his prophecy about the tearing down of the temple and building it in three days. That's going to become a, an argument against him in his Jewish trial. And then when he's hanging from the cross... There will be those who look on at him and they will taunt him saying, you who said you could build the temple in three days, why don't you come down from the cross and save yourself? So we hear about this more in Mark and history tells us that the temple was indeed completely destroyed in AD 70, completely destroyed. Now you might be thinking, great, the temple was destroyed. What does that have to do with me 2,000 years later? Well, here's what this has to do with you. Jesus used an opportunity of divine judgment over misuse of the temple to provide salvation. He was changing the center of worship and access to God. You see, when these onlookers were taunting Jesus on the cross, save yourself and come down from the cross, they failed to realize that in, in giving himself and in refusing to save himself, he was saving the very ones who were taunting him. 
because Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the temple. The temple was the place that people would go to to worship God. I mean, it was the place that people would go to pray. The temple was their access to God. And only one man could enter the center of access to God one time per year and only after intense and lengthy rituals of cleansing. But when Jesus died, Mark 15, 38 says that the curtain of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. God ripped the temple curtain. And what does this mean for you? This means that you don't have to pilgrimage to Jerusalem to access God. You can if you want. You can go to Jerusalem. I recommend it. But you don't have to. You don't have to wait for the trip of a lifetime to access God. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to complete religious rituals. That's not what brings you close to God. You do not need me, any other pastor. You don't need a priest. You have direct access to God through Jesus. You do. If you are a child of God, if you're a Christian, you have direct access to the king of the universe. That's something to get excited about. You see, God is not impressed by external show. He's not impressed by religious ritualism. In fact, when he looks at humanity, he sees such despicable sin and profanity of what should be holy that it took the death of his son to open up access to God for all. And he did that for you. So God is not impressed. The humble king is not impressed. He's not impressed by religious show, externalism. So what does he desire? What does he want? What does Jesus want? The humble king is not impressed with external show, but finally, he desires dependent faith. So look at verse 22. Sorry, verse 20. We read this earlier. This is the second half of the fig tree episode. And Jesus uses this to explain what does matter to him. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree that withered, withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, and he said to him, Rabbi, look, the, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. As if he had never seen Jesus do anything like this before. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. That's what matters to Jesus. Faith matters to Jesus. Dependent faith. And I think we find in these last few verses here that dependent faith, genuine faith, looks like two things. First, it looks like expectant trust. Expectant trust. Look at verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. So what does this mean here? What's this belief? I mean, does this mean that if you really, really want something, then you need to grind your teeth and twitch your nose and wrinkle your forehead and dig down deep for a little more faith? (laughs) Is that what this means? No. I mean, so I prayed that God would do this thing, and And he didn't do it, so I must not have had enough faith, as if faith is like a commodity to conjure up somehow. So what's going on with this? What does it mean to not 
doubt. And I think James gives us a hint, because he talks about this very thing in James chapter 1. He uses the word faith and the word doubt. Same words. Listen to this. James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith, what does it look like to ask in faith? With no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Here it is. What does it mean to be doubting? He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And there's our hint. Doubting is double-minded. Doubting is expressing one thing, but believing another. This is why, like oil and water, praying and doubting do not mix. It makes no sense to come to talk with the Father if I don't believe he has the ability to do something about my situation. And catch this. It makes no sense to talk to the Father if I don't believe he wants to do anything about my situation. Both are expressing doubt. I mean, could it be that your lack of communication with God betrays a lack of real desire for God? Or does it betray in you a wrong view of God? Because those who truly believe that God can do something and he wants to do something good for you, they will pray. They will. So faith is a necessary ingredient for prayer. It's not the only ingredient, but it's a necessary ingredient. I mean, the scriptures tell us about other ingredients of prayer. I mean, Jesus prayed in the garden, not, and he's the one that wrote this, or he's the one that said this right here. Not my will, but yours. And so we see that another pr- ingredient of prayer is praying according to God's will. And I think one of the reasons this verse causes us to draw back and question its meaning is because we tend to approach prayer in a very human-focused way. I think it's been said that prayer is not about getting my will done in heaven. It's about getting God's will done on earth. I mean, prayer is the picture of the boater who casts his rope to the dock to pull in. He doesn't hope to bring the dock to himself. He hopes to bring himself close to the dock. Prayer brings us close to God. Could it be that your lack of communication with God betrays the fact that you really just want God to do your will? And yet, in the Father's kindness, he has ordained that prayer actually accomplishes real things here on earth. I mean, what grace, what kindness, and what mercy that God would ordain, the Father would ordain real change as a result of you praying. What kindness. And so genuine faith looks like expectant trust. But lastly here, it also looks like consistent forgiveness. Look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. You say, how does forgiveness have anything to do with prayer? And I think here's how. There may be no 
greater tangible expression of genuine faith than forgiveness. Now, I think it's important to explain here. Jesus is not describing works-based forgiveness. Like, you can only achieve forgiveness from God if you forgive other people. No, that's not at all what he's saying. What Jesus is saying here is that a life that has been forgiven will forgive others. Forgiven people forgive people. Now, we could spend an entire message just on this verse on forgiveness because there's so much here. But for now, let me say this. If you are harboring in your heart, if you are harboring in your heart some resentment toward another person, any person, then your prayers are useless. Worse than that, they are putrid in God's sight. Just like the green leaves of the fig tree and the magnificence of the temple that disguise their fruitlessness and their emptiness. If you have not forgiven someone in your heart, then your prayers are nothing more than a mask on a monster. They're empty. And there's one more thing that I want to say about forgiveness before we make some final application here. This is an important question. Who, in this verse, verse 25, who has the responsibility to pursue and initiate forgiveness? Who does? You do. I do. When we look through Scripture, Scripture always places the responsibility on us, on you. Whether you are the one who did the wrong and need to be forgiven, or if you're the one who needs to forgive, the responsibility is always yours. And I think that's important. So it looks like consistent forgiveness. Now as we close here, let's make a few applications. The humble king is not impressed by external show, but he desires dependent faith. So what can we take away from all this? Based on all this that we looked at this morning, what should be our response? Well, first, since we're, talking, since we we're just talking about this, is there any broken relationship in your life that needs forgiveness? That you are unwilling to forgive. Here's the application. Forgive. <laughs> forgive. Now, as I said, we could take a whole morning and we could talk about what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not ignoring the wrong that's done. It's not forgetting it ever happened, like forgive and forget. No, that's not forgiveness. And forgiveness is not also the same thing as trust. But what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is making a promise. And when you forgive someone, you are making three promises. You are making the promise to meditate on this sin yourself. You're not going to meditate on it. You are promising that you will not spread this around to other people. And you are promising that you will not bring this up again to that person in order to make them pay. These are promises that you made, that you make in forgiving. So is there anyone that needs your forgiveness? Not anyone who, who deserves 
your forgiveness, anyone who needs your forgiveness, then forgive. Second, I think we should all take a long and hard think about our prayer life. What is our pattern of communication with God like? I mean, is it rare? Is it a last resort? Is it occasional? Is it filled with demands? Does your prayer life demonstrate a double-mindedness, a doubt? If you don't talk to God much, is it because you've grown cold toward him? Not really sure he can do anything about your situation, or you're not sure he wants to do anything about your situation. Is there doubt? You say, what do I do with my doubt? Well, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. If you're wrestling with doubt towards God, please, let me encourage you. Do not, do not stray from God's word. Do not stray from God's people. If you're wrestling with doubt, lean in. Just like the guy who said, I believe, help my unbelief. Lean in to God's word. And God will produce faith in you. But your, do your prayer habits demonstrate a double-mindedness? Or maybe do they demonstrate a self-focus? Are you more concerned that God do your will than that you do his will? I mean, consider, consider this question. If your love for God were measured, your love for God were measured by your communication with him, could it be said that you dearly love him? Or how about this? If your prayer habits were directly related to your sense of dependence on God, could it be said that you are desperately dependent on him? Because here's the reality. Your love for God and your dependence on God are directly related to the, your habit of communing with him. They are. King Jesus is a humble king. And because he's humble, he's not impressed with external show, but he desires dependent faith. So are you dependent this morning? Let's pray. God, we do desperately need you. That is always the case. But Lord, we confess in our American Christianity, we quickly default to a dependence on ourselves. And it's clear by the way we don't pray. And so we pray this morning that you would forgive us for our lack of dependence on you. But that you would motivate us by who you are and what you have done for us. Motivate us by the fact that you truly are in control of all things. You can do something about our situation. Motivate us by the fact that you want to do good. You will do good, you said. Motivate us by this, Lord. And may we be known in Muscatine as a people, not who have everything together, not as an external, showy place, but as dependent people who love your word and pray. 
Would you do this in us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name.